and invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew, uh, the 15th chapter, Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Our message this morning is mainly to be a warning. It's a warning type of message. Um, Not sure that it'll be that which tugs at your heart. Uh, I trust the Spirit of God can use any part of uh, uh, the Scripture to speak to the needs of our hearts. But as we uh, think about the warning that the Lord gives here to us, it's a warning to us who know Christ as our Savior, but it's also a warning to those who do not know Christ. And uh, so, as uh, we look at this, as we begin, first of all, I think with a principle, I believe the Lord Jesus would have us to learn from this message here in the 15th chapter of Matthew. It's a lesson that, sadly, very few people in this world learn uh, when it comes to spiritual things. And the lesson is this, the principle is this, it's dangerous to follow someone who doesn't really know where he or she is going. You know, maybe you've been out uh, uh, in a caravan of some sort, and somebody says, well, we're going to, you follow me, and uh, I'll take you where you're supposed to go. But then the come to find out that person that you're following doesn't know where they're going. And uh, that can be dangerous, but it can really be dangerous in the spiritual realm as well. Now, the broad subject uh, in this section of Matthew's Gospel is religion. As followers of Jesus Christ, we know that we're not saved by religion. God does not call us into religion but rather into a relationship, a saving relationship with himself through faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, people don't always understand the difference. I heard some guys talking on the radio. It was a talk show in response to something that one religious leader in the world said recently, and they were responding to this, and it just seemed like they just didn't know what they were talking about when they were talking about the things of the Lord. They were trying to talk about the Bible. They were trying to talk about uh, these things, but it just didn't make much sense. Neither one of them uh, knew, uh, seemed to know what he was talking about. Some people think, well, you know, if I'm going to be spiritual, I need to be religious. The problem is they don't need to be religious. They need to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. A religion, in the distinction I'm speaking of here, is a system of man-created beliefs and man-made rules and regulations by which I seek to do something for God. And such a system of religion will never save me. But by contrast, the saving faith that the Bible calls us to is a matter of being in a relationship in which by grace I have placed my trust in what God has done for me through the cross of Jesus Christ. You might say that the key word in religion is do. 
And the key word in a relationship with God through faith in Christ is done. It's done. I don't have to do anything. It's already been done. In this portion of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is in a confrontation situation with the religious leaders of the day. Their focus is on the do aspect of a religion, what they believe they can do in order to earn God's favor. And as we've found in our study of this passage, it has much to teach us about this subject of religion in general. Remember, as we've gone back, some of you... Uh, I've not always been here uh, with us on this, so we just kind of review a little bit. But it begins with the Pharisees and scribes confronting Jesus because of his failure in their estimation and according to their system to hold to the ancient religious traditions of Judaism. Find that in verses 1 through 9. The subject that Jesus touches on here in our uh, text this morning is that uh, uh, religious traditions or in the, uh, the text from last uh, time, in verses 1 through 9, is that of religious traditions. And Jesus shows that their traditions were strictly man-made religious traditions, which had become so important to them that they disobeyed the clear commandments of God just in order to keep their traditions. And so in this first portion, Jesus teaches that if we're not careful, religious traditions can actually become transgressions, of the law of God. And after he spoke these words to the Pharisees and to the scribes, Jesus then turns to the crowds that were there and overheard this confrontation and he corrected the misunderstanding of, that the religious teachers had instilled in the minds of these people through their traditional ceremonial washings. And we look, notice in verse uh, 10, verse 10, it says, And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand. Not that which goeth into a mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. And he spoke this strange-sounding parable to the crowds right there in front of the Pharisees who had just rebuked him. Later on, Peter's going to ask him to explain what he meant in verses 15 through 20. And there, Jesus will touch on another important subject that comes to religion, the subject of what is that that truly defiles someone. And Jesus will clarify the matter and uh, bring it into proper focus. And he'll teach us that true defilement before God isn't a matter of what we put in our mouths, the foods that we eat or we abstain from. Rather, he shows us that it's a matter of that what comes out of our mouths. What comes out? Our words. What comes out of our mouth is a product of what is truly in our heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. It's the stuff that comes out of our mouths that truly defies us or defiles us in God's sight. Now these are important principles to keep in mind when it comes to practices of religion. Now tucked in between these two principles is one that we'll focus on this morning and it has to do with the teachers and the leaders of man-made systems of religion. And Jesus warns us here to keep this in mind and he's talking to us about a spiritual principle that's dangerous to follow someone who doesn't know where they're going. Let's look at verse 12. Verse 12, Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou, not, or excuse me, knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? 
But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Now, if the Lord wills, we'll spend more of our attention in our next study here in chapter 15, that true defilement comes not from without, but from within. And before we do that, though, we want to look at Jesus' first articulation of that principle. He sets the context for our passage this morning, and from it we will, I, I trust, will glean some wonderful spiritual truths that relate to the whole subject of leaders and teachers of man-made religions. Now, first of all, I want you to notice that after the Pharisees and the, the, the scribes rebuked Jesus for not keeping their man-made traditions of ceremonial washing, and after Jesus then rebuked them in return for placing their man-made traditions over the clear commandments of God, Jesus then turns to them and speaks directly to the crowd and teaches them the spiritual truth that religious leaders had failed to either grasp or teach. That alone was a very bold move on the part of the Lord Jesus. It, he was demonstrating a characteristic about his teaching ministry that had previously amazed those who heard him. They had said earlier in Matthew chapter 7, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Uh, he didn't look at the long held traditions and script of scriptural interpretation and application that the Pharisees and scribes had developed and codified. He didn't quote Rabbi so-and-so or Rabbi such-and-such. In order to authorize what he said, he spoke as who he himself was, the Son of God in human flesh, who taught divine truth under the direct authority of his heavenly Father. Now, I can't help but think that this had a dramatic impact on those who saw it. That Jesus would, as it were, go over the heads of the religious leaders and speak directly to the crowds. And what's more, I believe it showed the compassion and the grace of our Lord that he would do so. He didn't speak these words of truth to the Pharisees and scribes, the learned and religious elite of the day. Rather, he called the common people to himself. He spoke to the multitudes and he spoke to them. And that reminds me of another wonderful truth about our Savior's redeeming love. And it's one that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, he said, For ye see that your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world which... Uh, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him that in, are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. We also notice that Jesus begins here with an invitation. We read that back in verse 10. He said, hear and understand. Now that's a remarkable invitation. Jesus doesn't just invite them to listen to him, to hear the parable, but he invites them 
to understand it. Now let's stop and think about that. You know, to hear what Jesus has to say, but not to understand is a very condemning thing. And that was all the Pharisees were able to do. These proud Pharisees and scribes, they heard, but their minds were closed. They had not been given the ability to understand. Only by an act of God's grace can anyone be enabled to hear and understand. And Jesus here offers that grace, not to the proud and learned religious leaders, but to simple folks who gathered around him, The Apostle Peter exemplifies the attitude that we should have, one that we humbly seek to be granted the ability to understand what Jesus says because he later will ask Jesus to explain this. He says uh, in verse 15, Declare unto us this parable. Tell us what it means. I believe all these things help us to appreciate the warnings here that Jesus is about to give us concerning teachers and leaders in man-made systems of religion. Because in all of this, Jesus boldly sets himself above the religious leaders of the day and teaches and speaks truth directly to the people. He corrects the errors of the teachers of man-made religion. You know, there are some religions says, you know, you common people, you can't understand all this. Only the leaders and the, the teachers can understand this. We've been given the truth, and we'll explain it to you maybe if you do this, 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 and this. But Jesus is warning us not to follow leaders who do not really know where they themselves are going. I believe that's what the Apostle John was speaking of when he wrote, These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointeth anointing teacheth you of all things is, and is truth and is no lie and even as it hath taught you ye shall abide in him. Now, I believe that teachers and leaders are a necessary part of the church that God or Christ has established here on earth. The Bible tells us that Christ himself gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. But they are teachers and leaders who teach us and lead us in truths that God has already authoritatively established once and for for all in the sure words of Scripture. By contrast, teachers and religious leaders who invent something new for us have done so because they departed from the truths that were given in God's Word. And no matter how persuasive or how convincing those teachers may be, it's dangerous to follow someone who in the end doesn't really know where he's going. And so in the context of these warnings that Jesus is about to teach us in this passage, and apparently the disciples were disturbed by it all, they came to him and said, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended? They no doubt knew of the growing animosity of the religious leaders held toward Jesus, and they must have known that the Pharisees had already plotted to kill him, to destroy him. And as they read the feeling of offense on the faces of the Pharisees, they very possibly were concerned about their own safety. And so let, they let Jesus know what they thought. He didn't know that he had offended them. 
Well, I suspect the Lord did know. I, I suspect the Lord did know that he had offended them. He spoke what he said in a very public manner. And whether Jesus knew that he offended the scribes or not, he does go on to address the matter to the disciples. And here's what he gives us, some basic principles we need to keep in mind. First of all, notice he speaks of the doom, the doom of man-made systems of religion. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Now, what did he mean by every plant? Uh, there have been a variety of opinions about this, of course, and some have said, well, it refers to the teachers or leaders themselves who teach in contradiction to God's revealed will. Others have said, well, it refers to the systems of religion and that they develop. Still others refer to the doctrines and the teachings that they disseminate. Others, perhaps because of the immediate context, believe that it refers to the traditions that were developed as a result of these false systems. It may be that the phrase was intentionally broad, that we should take it to mean everything which our Heavenly Father did not establish will one day, as it were, be pulled up by the roots like a weed to be discarded. I suspect these words might have reminded the disciples about another parable that Jesus had just already told them back in chapter 13 about the parable of the wheat and tares. But the point is clear, though, isn't it? Even though the religious or the Pharisees and the scribes may have been offended at his rebuke of their system of religion, with all of its trappings and traditions and teachings, it didn't matter. Their system was not something that the Father had planted. So ultimately, it was doomed to be pulled up by the roots on the great day of judgment. And those are strong words by the Lord. Those are strong words for people today who are coming up with systems of religions, ways, if you please, to get to heaven, but they're not the way. What a great warning they should serve to make us uh, sure that we give ourselves over exclusively to following Christ and obeying His commandments. What a warning it is that we not allow ourselves to be associated with that which is not of God, with that which is doomed to be pulled up, to be cast away. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, For other foundation can no man lay that, than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon his, this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And if any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. Now, we must be discerning, and we need to make sure that our faith is built on the foundation that will last, not on that which is doomed to be pulled up by the roots. So then Jesus speaks of the doom of these systems of religion and tradition or philosophy that are not of God. That alone should be enough of an admonishment to keep away from them. But next, we see Jesus speaks of the blindness 
of the leaders of those systems. The blindness. I think it's interesting that when disciples came to Jesus to tell them uh, that He had offended uh, the, the scribes and Pharisees, He didn't seek in any way to remove the offense. He didn't say, like is very popular today, oh, if I've offended you, I'm sorry. He didn't seek to remove the offense. He didn't apologize. He didn't try to explain to them. Instead, he told the disciples, let them alone. Now, this wasn't because Jesus didn't care about these offending people, about offending people. Clearly, in some cases, he did care very much. For example, there was the controversy about Jesus and the paying of the temple tax that was required of every Jewish person. Jesus maintained that it was not necessary for him to pay the tax because he and those who followed him were the full, uh, were the full realization of that which, would, uh, which the temple was meant to symbolize. And he said, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. And then he sent Peter off to go fish for that tax money. Remember, he found the tax money in the mouth of the fish. But here, this is a different situation. The scribes and the Pharisees were not put off because of some innocent misunderstandings or offense. Rather, they were setting themselves in opposition to the clear teaching of God's Word. Jesus cut it straight with them. He uttered, uh, utterly countered their false teaching. And rather than repentant, they were offended. Their hearts were hardened toward the truth. And Jesus' response was to leave them in that state of offense. He neither sought their acceptance nor feared their disapproval. And as we read on, we see why. Jesus said, these are blind leaders leading the blind. You see, it was a typical of the Jewish religious leaders to think of themselves as guides to spiritual, the spiritually blind. Uh, they held it that, that it was their task, their job, their duty to, uh, to lead those who are without spiritual understanding, to guide them to the light, so to speak. Paul once referred to them in those very terms. In Romans chapter 2, verse 17, he said, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and resteth in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou art thyself a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness. But the fact is that in reality, these religious leaders were themselves spiritually blind. Just think about it. There was the Son of God standing before them, and yet they're opposing Him in every way. And that's what made them particularly culpable because they were not only spiritually blind, but they were also in a state of arrogant denial about their blindness. They set themselves up as guides to others who were blind. So Jesus warns us to think rightly about those who in arrogance set themselves up as teachers and spiritual leaders. They speak impressively in what seems to be a credentialed matter, but they may even sound reasonable and intelligent. But the fact is, they themselves are spiritually blind. And they are worse than just blind. They are blind leaders of the blind. To be blind is bad. But to be blind leader of the blind is nothing short of deadly. 
This leads us to one final thing that Jesus tells us and warns us about teachers and leaders. And that is the danger to those who follow those leaders. Now here we've been talking quite a bit about what Jesus says, and he says it very plainly here. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into a ditch. Literally, he says, they both will fall into a pit or a well, a fall that leads to utter destruction. And I want to give you a more uh, up-to-date example of what's happening today. I don't know how many of you have heard of what's called the emergent church. The emergent church. What is that? What's the emergent church? It's very popular in theological circles today. But very briefly, and I won't go into a lot of detail about this, but just very briefly, it's a church that believes in experience over reason. Experience over reason. It's a church that believes in spirituality over doctrine and absolutes. It's a church that has images over words, feelings over truth, earthly justice over salvation, and social action over eternity. Now you can see where this is going. Very bluntly, the emergent church movement is completely a redefinition of Christianity. It's being Christianity redefined. Now, I believe there's a difference, though, between the emergent church and the emerging church. The emerging church is one that's becoming an emergent church but probably hasn't gotten there fully. And I'm sorry to say this morning that's happening to many once good independent Baptist churches all over our land. When preaching is minimalized and entertainment worship is overemphasized, you know your church is emerging. In relationship to our text, what speaks... Uh, which speaks about the blind leading the blind. I read a very interesting quote this week. It said it went this way. If you walk blindfolded into a worship service, and I say, quote, worship service, and can't tell whether you're in a church or a nightclub or a rock concert or a bar, there's something definitely wrong. The tragedy is that immature men in the ministry have been drawn into the errant Theology by intellectuals who pretend to be loyal to the Scripture. And the path to liberalism is a gradual process. Those who have chosen to abandon one biblical interpretation of Scripture may move along this treacherous route quite slowly, while others might even hasten to fall from the truth. There are those who have sat under the teaching of godly men and been shown the value of the biblical text, but later they make the mistake of listening to those who've left the authority and sufficiency of the Scripture. Those teachers are intellectual and philosophical, and that combination often leads to an arrogance which allows folks to twist the text in such a way as to produce their own desired needs. And I'm afraid some of those intellectual philosophical teachers are in our Bible colleges today. It's simply a rewriting of Scripture. For example, a a person can, in a very short time, 
move from a biblical context to a tragic end in what we call a liberalism of amillennialism. Now, you know what amillennialism, if I could even say it, I knew if I'd start saying it too many times, it'd really mess up, but amillennialism. It's a belief that there's no thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, or if there is, we're already in it. Now, we are a dispensational in our belief, and we believe in the uh, pre-tribulation rapture of believers. It could happen at any time. Jesus could come uh, in the clouds, as it, as it tells us there in, in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we could be caught up to be with Him. And then there's going to be a seven-year tribulation time. There will be people here on this earth who, uh, yes, they could possibly be saved, but if they'd already heard the truth, I don't think they will be saved. And after that seven years of tribulation time, then Jesus is going to come back to this earth, and we're going to come with Him, and He's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. Now that's all important because, remember, Matthew is talking much about the Messiah and about Jesus coming and about, as a king. We currently live in the church age. We do not live in the kingdom age. We may refer to ourselves as kingdom citizens, but that's because that's still future yet. Now, how does this happen? That people, and especially young people, who are accepting this theological error today, people who ought to know better, who appear to be incapable of recognizing theological error. Some of these individuals are well-educated. They have graduate and postgraduate degrees. Some of them have majored in theological disciplines, and others have been spent a good part of their life in some kind of ministry. So what went wrong? Why is truth not high on their list of priorities? There's a lot of talk about these things these days, but there's very little or very seldom a question about the theology behind it. Don't they know about a theology that is biblical? I can't imagine that they don't care. But the crisis grows when someone does ask the question about doctrinal error, and when you ask them a question and you get into a sincere discussion, it seems like you're attacking someone. And you're saying, oh, you're just not loving you have a lack of love because you're questioning my doctrine. Instead of searching the scripture to discover the truth about a subject, a person who asks a question is attacked personally. And we must realize that a person who attacks the messenger instead of dealing with the message has a hidden agenda. Jesus taught us that we are not to, uh, to be respecters of person. The Bi uh, Bible is about God. Man is spoken of throughout its pages, but the Bible is a revelation about our Creator God. And that's what we are to deal with in doctrine and theology. It's all about God. When someone teaches error, we should hasten to the Bible and the God of the Bible for the answers. Instead, we quickly go to the defense of some contemporary evangelical figure, even if he's speaking against the clear statement of the text, 
Others will jump on the historical bandwagon and defend some theological system or historic writer or teacher. And I'm telling you, there is not a human being alive, including your pastor, who is not flawed. There is no movement, no denomination, no creed, no theological system that isn't tainted with air so that they do wish to defend everything but the Scripture. Some say Scripture needs no defense, but that's the kind of talk that buries professing Christianity in error. This approach doesn't mean that we can't have an appreciation for people. There are some who... Uh, organizations and movements and so forth, we can have appreciation. But on the other hand, all these things call for us to ask questions. We cannot please God and actively cover up error, nor should we ignore error. What kind of pride would ignore the responsibility given to every believer to compare Scripture with statements and printed material? You cannot believe everything you read. As we said in Sunday school, not everything on the internet's true. Uh, did you know that? To the person who is committed to authority and sufficiency of Scripture, a correct system of biblical interpretation is very, very important. Many have chosen a system that allows them to insert whatever they want into the biblical text. But I remind you that this is exactly what is being done with the constitution of our country. It's the practice of liberals. It's the practice, their practice of, and their way of thinking. It's a mindset. People are saying, well, this is what the constitution means. No, this is what it means. People are taking the Bible and saying, well, I think it means this. Now, you may think it's something else, but I think it means this. That is the reason why when someone abandons one biblical interpretation, he can come up with all kinds of theology or inventions to replace it. There is, that is, the well-intentioned student can leave the truth behind and rapidly take a journey from truth to liberalism or amillennialism. So, followers of Jesus Christ, let's be circumspect. Let's be careful. Let's be careful we do not follow after so-called teachers and religious leaders and spiritual advisors and counselors who in actuality are the blind leading the blind. We must be very careful. As Jesus has already warned us, you will know them by their fruits. Just looking at our passage this morning, you can tell them by two things. Number one, they lead and teach in a way that's contrary to the Word of God and in such a way to cause people to be in disobedience to the clear commands of God. When you find a teacher or someone, a preacher, uh, whether he's on television or where you write, a, uh, he's on a blog or somewhere, if he's saying something that's contrary to the Word of God, he's the blind leading the blind. Also, what happens when you try to correct them or you point out there, oh, they become offended? That's what happened to the Pharisees and the scribes. 
Jesus pointed out their error, and they were offended. How dare you? Don't you know who we are? Don't you know how many degrees I have behind my name? Don't you know how many times or how many schools that I've been a, a professor at? You have the nerve to point out error? Jesus' counsel to us in such cases is simple and straightforward. Forward, let them alone. Just let them alone. Ignore them. Now, let's be sure we measure teachers and their teachers by the sure standards that God has given us. First, let's measure them against Christ and against His command to follow obediently after Him. It's not wrong to be ministered to by a teacher or leader who's following Jesus faithfully. Paul himself was able to tell the Corinthians, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And then secondly, let's be sure to measure what we hear against the faithful teaching of Scripture. Let's be like the noble Bereans in the book of Acts who were told when they heard the teachings of Paul and Silas, what did they do? They searched the Scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Don't take my word for it, folks. Get in the book. Search the Scriptures. And let's be alert. Let's be aware. Let's be forewarned. Let's make very sure not to follow someone who does not know where they're going. Now, we know that it, that's where our country is today politically because people have been following people who don't know where they're going. But let's not make that mistake as Christians, as believers. Let's not follow people who don't know where they're going. And I trust that we'll be students of the Word. And I encourage you to be students of the Word. I encourage you uh, through uh, the preaching and teaching of God's Word here. I trust you understand the notes are there not for you to have a place to scribble on. I don't know what you do with the notes when you're done. That's between you and the Lord. But I want to give you every opportunity to take some things in, take God's Word, and then go home and go back and examine it yourself. Study it. Say, I'm not a school. I don't want to be in school anymore. Listen, you're in school the rest of your life. Well, maybe you're not getting a grade. You're not handing in your papers to me. And I'm not putting a big red mark on the front of it. But there is a grade. There is a test tomorrow. Okay? Let me just let you know. There's a test tomorrow. And there's going to be one on Tuesday. And there's one on Wednesday. And there's going to be a test on Thursday and Friday. And I can hear student, my students groaning already. A test every day. As Christians, we are tested every day. And we need to be ready for those tests. You need to be in the Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Help us to be the students of the Word that we need to be.
Lord, there is so much error. Even in the name of independent Baptist Bible-believing churches, there are people who are not following the Word of God today. Lord, I pray that You would help us, help this preacher to give forth the truth of Your Word. Lord, help our people to be students of the Word and to be as the noble Bereans and search the Scriptures to see whether these things be so. Lord, I pray that today, if there's someone here that does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they never understand what the Bible says until they come to that point of faith and that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll be just another book, another religious book to them. But when they come to Christ and they have that relationship with Him, they'll realize there are wonderful truths and principles in Your Word which can guide us and direct us in our lives and help us to live in these days. Lord, I pray that we would be warned And Lord, speak to our hearts this morning. Even as we close this service, we pray in Jesus' name.